Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating. Stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Kimmy Scotty, to our show today. Kimmy is the co-founder and CEO of the skincare brand Fig One, and also the founder and managing partner of the early stage VC firm Neon. Kimmy's been an entrepreneur since she was just 15 years old, turning a jewelry side hustle into a legitimate money-making business that landed her a trunk show at Bloomingdale's and featured in Project Runway. Over the next 15 years, she built countless companies in healthcare and fashion while also becoming a venture capitalist at 8VC early in her career. Most recently, she launched Fig One, a skincare brand that delivers science-backed, refillable, and price-right skincare products with clinically proven results. She wanted to change the landscape for consumers to have beautiful skin with great product formulation without breaking the bank. They've grown their line from direct-to-consumer to now over 3,000 retail, spa, and dermatologist locations. Kimmy is a wealth of knowledge. We get all the insights on her experience with building multiple businesses from the age of 15 to now and the biggest learnings and takeaways she's had along the way. We talk about how she thinks through metrics and unit economics when building brands and investing in companies. She also shares how she built brand awareness for Fig One when they launched and the impact partnerships have had on the business. We also chat about the common mistakes most founders make when starting their business, why perfectionism is only holding you back in life and in business, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Kimmy. Thank you for having me, Yasmin. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm excited because what's so unique about you is that You've had that entrepreneurial spirit since you were a kid, but you also now have the investor hat. So this interview is going to be very unique because we're going to hit all different angles of business, which I think is going to benefit so many of the women who are listening. But I'd actually love to start with the very early days. You know, I'm so inspired by the hustle that you had, you know, from when you were a kid, like age six, you were doing different businesses. And I'm just always curious about, you know, where did that hustle and drive come from? And maybe were there certain family dynamics that kind of shaped you to be that kid that really wanted to make money and kind of create that life for themselves. It's so rare to see like a teenager that's like building their own company. And I think a couple of things were true. One, my parents, my my mom um, in particular is an Italian immigrant. And when I was growing up, even until I was like eight years old, my grandmother worked in a sweatshop in New York in Queens. And so I had working, you know, working parents, hustling parents, and also grandparents, and in particular, my grandmother nearby and, um, you know, and really, you know, getting on a train every day and going to work sewing clothes in, a, in the, pen, you know, this, this building in, in Queens called the Octagon. And when, you know, when I was growing up, I'm really good with my hands and I'm good at making things. And I still am like, I very, you know, very much love to make things. And I realized that that was a skill that I could, you know, build something around. And so when people were doing things like babysitting and, and that kind of thing, and I kind of looked at my, my life, I realized that I was going to need to do something 
different than my sort of other teenage peers. And I needed to decouple dollars from hours. I'm like, I can't work a regular hourly job. That's never going to get me as much money as I need to mm. do like go to college and, and live my life. And so I knew I had to start early. I could see hard work around me. My mother would go, you know, she had like a little store in a salon in Queens. And then she would on the weekends, sell things at the flea market. And she was always doing, you know, these, you know, sort of stringing together these kinds of things and working really hard for us. And um, my dad was an addict and I knew that, you know, we knew that too. And so we'd have a relationship. And I think all of those things together created really like a grit in me that was present even as a child um, and lasting till today. Gosh, I have goosebumps because just to see like the strong women in your life, right? Like your mother, your grandmother, seeing them work hard. I'm just so interested how so early in your life at a young age, you knew you wanted to make more money than the hours that you had in yeah. your life. That's actually a really good skill set, even like as an entrepreneur now, because like there's never enough hours in the day and you're always trying to be efficient with your time. So that is just so fascinating that you had that awareness so mm-hmm. early on in your life. Fascinating. Yeah. I remember filling out these little time cards. I had like a, I had a little job at the concession stand at our local pool and it had time cards. And I remember just doing the math and it was like this many hours and this many dollars. And then you would do the math and you'd, and you'd hand it in. And I'm like, there's no, there's not enough hours to make enough dollars. Basically there's, there's no way, not at this price, like not at this cost per hour, basically. And so I, you know, I had this like very real sort of physical example of understanding that like, this is just not going to add up to very much, no matter how many hours I can come. Yes. Yes. And I love how that specific memory was like so impactful. Like sometimes you don't realize how those things can make such a difference, but it's, and how old were you at the time? So I was 12 when I had that job and I had it for almost three summers. And And so I had until I was 15 when I started my jewelry business. Well, that, yeah, that's my kind of next question. And and what I love is that, you know, you're very business oriented, but you're also heavy, like very much a creative person, right? You can see it in your businesses now. You obviously saw it as a kid. What was the inspiration for that jewelry business for you to be like, oh shit, like this is something I actually want to do. And like, I'm onto something. It's so funny because there's like, I feel like the sort of oldest story in my, that I have in my family of like my entrepreneurial spirit was like, I was six years old or something. And I made my grandmother a necklace and it was too short and she wanted it a little longer. She asked me to add two inches and I charged her for the beads and the, and for the space basically. And I was like six or six or seven. And so there's, I always had sort of like a business sense, right? Mm. I think that sort of sort of lends itself to, to seeing that I had a business sense from early. And I, but also I'm really good. Like I said earlier with my hands, I'm really creative. And like, when I describe myself, I very much describe myself as a maker. I like to make things. And so I um, would love, I love to make jewelry and I would go to the city with my Aunt Pina and I would make things at the jewelry store. And one rainy day, I was with my mom and we were in a jewelry store. We were in like a bead store in Manhattan. And the- there's like a district for all of this with beads and buttons and things. And I was, and it was pouring rain. And so we stayed in there for a little while and I made something and then I wore it out. And a woman stopped me on the street and she said, Where did you get that beautiful necklace? And I said, Oh, actually, I'm a designer. And I, I knew what I spent on the beads and I just charged her twice. 
basically for the feeds and that's profit. And, um, you know, though I didn't, I didn't factor in time because I, I, yeah. yeah. And then I sold her the necklace and then I made myself another one and I paid for both necklaces by selling the one. Right. And then I started to learn more about things like retail math. I found a little store, um, in New Jersey that would sell my products. And I was like, okay, if I charge them two times, for wholesale, then they charge their user two times for retail and that's easy retail math. And so I actually think a jewelry business or like a product business like that, where you can make something yourself, a really good understanding of how sort of business math works. And, and so I really, you know, I really learned that while I was building my jewelry business and it's, it's sort of easy enough um, math that you can do as a teenager, but there's, there's actually a lot of complexity to, to building that kind of business and selling and learning rejection from early. And, you know, I think that probably helped me later on when I was dating. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. No, and it is true. I think, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit later, just like the importance of understanding your unit economics and profitability. And I love that you said so early on, like when you're creating a product yourself by hand, you know, like the, every aspect of it. So you truly understand the cost. So you knowing that so early, like, okay, I spent X amount to get all these beads and the strings. and I'm going to sell it to this person. Like it sounds so basic, but there's a lot of people that I know now who run businesses who don't know those numbers. So I I just want to underscore that for anyone listening. Like it's very simple just to like drill down into the basics of it. But, you know, I'm curious, you ended up doing this jewelry business, you know, seems like on the side when you were still going to school for like another seven years, which is really awesome. I'm sure we could do a whole nother podcast digging into all those years, but what would you say are maybe some of the biggest learnings that you had? You know, one thing you mentioned is rejection, which I think to learn that so early in your life is like the biggest blessing. So, but I would love to hear kind of your perspective on maybe like a few of the biggest learnings from that era. Totally. So rejection is a big one, right? Learning that someone telling you no is not telling you you can't do something. It's just, it's no for them, right? And it's also not necessarily a reason to change how or what you do. So you have, you can hear it and hear the feedback. But I think one of the most important things about being an entrepreneur is vision and staying on course with your vision, right? Think of all of the great entrepreneurs of our time and how crazy their products must have seemed while they were making them. And, you know, we had, we had MySpace and then Facebook came up and I'm sure how many times do you think Zuckerberg heard that we already have one of these and we don't need one of these probably a lot of times. And how often are we like, how big of a business is that today? And how often are we all using these platforms? I'm doom scrolling Instagram constantly. Right. And so, you know, a lot of the time when you're describing something you want to create that doesn't exist yet, it sounds really crazy. And people give you lots of feedback that make that idea small and fit into the time we're in. And all of those ideas are bad for the most part. Sometimes there's great feedback in the mix, but I tr- what I try to tell myself is when someone gives you feedback, feel it and feel it feel if it feels true for you. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't resonate, then set it aside and, and move on. And, you know, I think that that's really important. And I think learning rejection from early and being told, no, I don't like this. Can you make it like this instead? And me saying, I'm a designer, I'm not a short order cook, you know, and this is how I'm designed. This is what I designed. And if you don't want to buy, it, you don't want to buy it. That's fine. You can find something else you like. And being like really steadfast in that and secure in my own vision and ideas, I think help me now, now that the visions are bigger and the ideas are bigger. And, and, and so is the pushback right? The pushback is from investors sometimes who are 
well-respected and even famous investors sometimes. And you might want to hear that, right? You, you, oh, well, he knows better than me, you know, is something you might think to yourself. It's not always the case. Just because someone is bigger than you does not mean they always know better than you. And so you just have to see if information and feedback resonates with you before you go ahead and apply it to your business. So that's, I think, big early learning. Yeah, that's a huge one. And I love what you mentioned, like with smart investors saying something, because sometimes I think people can put other people on a pedestal, but they don't know the inner workings of your business. Like you're the one that gave birth to it and truly understand every little thing that I love that you said, if it doesn't feel right, like don't think too much about it. And before I started my business, I didn't understand what that meant. But once you've kind of launched something and put it out in the world, like you know in your core and your gut, like what feels right and you know your customers the best. So I love that you said that because I do think a lot of people can get down, especially in the very early days where you're still proving product market fit. You're proving yourself. You're like, is this idea going to work? It's so tough to hear rejection. But how do you think you built that confidence like so early in your life where you're like, you know what, if this necklace isn't for you, like I'm the, I'm the designer, like, is that something you were born with? Or did you have the confidence from selling, seeing positive reinforcement that one or two people that might have been in the mix? You're like, you know what, this is who I am. And this is what I like. It's so it's so funny. I don't know if like the chicken, like sort of chicken or egg. Sure. Um if it's that I had positive feedback first, I don't think so. I think it's that I'd like to think that in reality, I just have a really strong sense of um, style and aesthetic for my, that's for myself. Mm. And okay. there's all the, you know, there's all the time where, you know, where sort of, I was like a kind of weirder dressed kid um, because I have my own sense of personal style and it's not always, you know, cookie cutter. And I think that gave me the confidence to say this is, you know, maybe everything is not for everyone. And mm-hmm. some things that some things are just for me. And I might make something even still now for myself that's like highly not commercial, right? But it's, uh, but it's for me. And so I think in general, in the sort of the vast world we're in, if you have a product, there's probably an audience for it. And you just, and then it's about finding it and like effective marketing dollars to sort of getting there. And I think I saw it on like a very small scale as a kid mm. that I have a product and I like it. And so there's likely an audience for it somewhere. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. I was just listening to this podcast right before jumping on with you um, with the founder of Airbnb. He was on the Steven podcast. It was actually very good. I highly recommend everyone listening, especially if you're an entrepreneurship, whatever stage you're at, 
very, very impressed. And he was saying, and you might know his story, just but just sharing in case anybody doesn't, he didn't think that Airbnb, he started with like two co-founders or something, or maybe it was two of them, can't remember specifics, but it was just going to be something they started just to make money for that quote unquote big idea. And everybody was like, there's no way this is going to be big at all. But then they kind of just started with small steps of like, we got a few people booked in our room because we needed to make money and slowly grew from there. And he's like, you know, if I listen to all those investors who were like, this is just not going to work. He's like, our revenue is like bigger than like, he was saying like the GDP of Croatia, something ridiculous. So it's just, you never know. And I love that you said, solve your own problem, like start with baby steps because there's, if you have this problem or understand something like the customers are out there and the next complexity is like, how do you slowly hit them all? But it's like one step in front of the other, which is, you know, kind of how your jewelry business expanded over seven years. You know, you ended up getting into Bloomingdale's and everything, which is awesome. You have to start with one idea and one customer, you know, and I think there's a lot, especially as women, right? Your audience is, is mainly women, right? One of the things we do differently from men, and I see it across my investing business, and I, you know, I see it in entrepreneurs I know, is that we wait to be perfectly prepared for things all the time, right? We, we need to get a specific degree and we practice and we try and we want it to be perfect. We want the right logo and we rent the right packaging and all of these things, we want to be exactly right. And actually, it's not the answer in entrepreneurship. It's we need to get started. We need to get out. We need to get feedback, right? When I look at the things, when I think of the things, I can I can see that necklace in my mind's eye that I made that that woman bought. I can see it. When I think of the things that I made then, there's like, make me cringe. I can't believe it. <laughs> sure. You know, so many things with charms, you know? <laughs> and I think it's like, you, you're never going to be super proud of like your first ever podcast or your first ever product. You know, when you look back after you've been in market and professionalizing and being sharpened, you know, by customers in the market as well, because as you get feedback from customers, those are, re that's real feedback, right. And adapt, then you're going to, you're going to get to a sharper, stronger idea, a better business overall. And as you're doing those things, you know, you're, you're learning from that experience and you're, you know, you're sort of morphing and, and changing and pivoting along the way, but you have to get out to get started, right? If you feel that your product is perfect, when you put it in the market, it's probably too late. You probably should have put it out six months ago. Gosh, I am so passionate about this because you're right. There's so many people that I meet. And listen, this is something I battled early on, but starting a business, you quickly realize like certain things, it doesn't matter. You need to just get it out there. Like you said, feedback. I was actually just telling um, one of our, one of our teammates who works with us that on our packaging, we spelled the email wrong. And I looked at that thing, like, you know, in detail, then it, you know, it's not a big deal. But at the time when you launch, you're like, oh shit, we just did like 10,000 units and the email's wrong. And how are people going to get, you know, but it didn't impact the business. We got it out there. We learned, we pivoted. So I think those details, like you were saying, the logo, the specific brand, the colors, like people spend so much time on that. And that doesn't equal business success. Like just get it out there and learn. And like you said, like another woman on my podcast mentioned, if you're not embarrassed by the thing that you put out, you waited too long. Very similar to like what you said. So I just want to underscore that because if you're listening right now and you want everything to be perfect, that is just not the right step when it comes to business. And you'll quickly learn once you're out there, like it's not going to move the needle 
at the end of the day. So I love that. So I'm curious, you know, you ended up going to FIT, which I love because you still kind of followed your passions in creativity and fashion. And you actually ended up working at a family office. And you mentioned in another interview, like you had no idea what that even was. So tell me more about that, because it's so fascinating that you working there, I think really like changes trajectory of your life and like even what you're up to today. So tell us more about that time period in your life. Yeah. It's so interesting because I remember, I can remember the conversation when um, one of my best friends, Marissa Renee Lee, who's amazing. And she, um, she went to Harvard and she was my then boyfriend, now ex-husband's cousin. Okay. <laughs> and she was, you know, she knew a lot of things that I didn't know. She was a trader at Brown Brothers, trading commodities when I got out of college. And she knew a lot about finance and different types of finance that I had no idea about, right? I thought you could be a stockbroker and that was a trader and that's the kind of investing that you could do. And I basically didn't see there was a sort of home market beyond that to to understand and were, you know, other sort of sources of capital. If you had an idea, I just didn't really know. And I certainly didn't know what a family office was when she said, oh, it's going to be a new family office that he's starting. And I'm like, what kind of family has an office? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so- It's an interesting word. I remember when I first heard it, I was like, what is that? (laughs) What is that? And it's like, oh, it's just like somebody that manages this whole, like this person's wealth basically, or, you know, and I had no idea that that could be a thing that a sort of person could, you know, and managing their assets could be a business. And it turns out there's a lot of it. (laughs) <laughs> Turns out there's lots and lots. Exactly. And that was my first understanding of venture capital. That was my first understanding of private equity. That was my sort of first foray into understanding all these things. And obviously, this is how I spend my life now, right? So it's kind of amazing that um, that my first introduction to it, I was like 21, you know, and now 17 years later, this is how I spend my time is, you know, is investing, is raising capital from this, that type of office and then invest, you know, investing it in, in new ideas. And so it's, um, it's very crazy, but she, you know, she went to just serendipitously, she had gone to a dinner at this person's home. And then later, you know, the next day introduced us, I was thinking I would build another kind of company. And I didn't really know what that meant. I kept saying, I'm going to build technology companies. Facebook had gone wide at that point. This is 2000 seven that I graduated. And so Facebook had just gone wide and sort of off of its handful of main campuses. And I'm like, this is, I think where things are going, right? We're going to build technology companies. I still had the iPod with the wheel, you know, Amazon was still selling books. Right. And so this is, that's kind of set the stage of the time that we were in. And then and then things moved really fast, right? We got an iPad, we got an iPad really quickly after that, and everything else. And so, um, so I was sort of interviewing for this job that was really open ended. It was like we're going to build stuff here, and ultimately, he gave me a rule, the the founder, that I could kind of build whatever, so long as you didn't spend very much money starting whatever the idea was, and things were profitable basically immediately. And and that was sort of the the baseline for for trying anything and so it was a really amazing experience and i ended up having a fruitful 8 years there co-founding and building companies 
And, you know, it brought me into healthcare. We ended up building a healthcare company in the prescription affordability space that's since helped, you know, many tens of millions of Americans afford their prescription purchases, but it's also a wildly profitable business. Yeah. Amazing. I love that you learned that so early on because I graduated 2010. I was in investment banking and then I was like, I want to do my own thing. Let me go into tech because it was like all the hype, similar to like what you mentioned. And I remember... I was working at a tech company. They were not profitable. The guy was a serial entrepreneur. He raised like 15 million on an idea. And that was like what I knew, you know? And I remember my dad and my brother are both entrepreneurs, like old school entrepreneurs. And they're like, I'm so confused. You guys aren't making money. Like, how is this business alive? I mean, it's a, you know, it's like a different way of building, like obviously a tech company versus, you know, other businesses. It's, it's different trade-offs. But I'm curious for you because... You had that training at the family office of, okay, let's try to build different brands with not too much money and being profitable, but you also aren't an investor, you know, even now. So I know some investors are like, all right, just, you know, profitability is not at the core, just, you know, invest in growth. And that's all that matters. I know the times right now are shifting, but how has that kind of played a role in you investing over the course of the years? Yeah, I think, first of all, being an entrepreneur um, and an operator and an excellent operator, honestly really informs my investing business, right? It really informs my investing strategy and and style as well and how I work with entrepreneurs also. I even over the last bunch of years when investors were like growth at all costs and just lean into growth, you know, I was, you know, I very much was on the other side saying, mm-hmm. listen, we need to balance growth with strong business fundamentals. We're, this is not an endless pit of capital that we're going to have access to. And also it's how it's, I saw some founders that I was working up closely to basically lose their businesses because of, of overraising. And even if they didn't lose them in, let's say like in practice, right, they were still their own CEO, they lost control of things. And I, I could see that. And I'm like, you didn't get into this business to work for me. Not really. And so I thought that was a, I thought that was like an interesting thing to sort of see up close, you know, watch people, um, you know, take on too much capital, this growth with the growth at all costs mindset, and then, you know, kind of manage their way, raise their way out of being in control of their own companies, which is what they, you know, think they're on earth here to do, right, is build their, this company. And so I think there's a lot of reasons to raise capital and I think there are a lot of amazing investors and bringing them to bringing investors together with founders in the right mix with the you know right terms right amount of dollars whatever builds a stronger business it really it can and and I've seen it um and I've been part of that but I also think you have to think hard about when you're raising capital is this the right capital is this the right kind of capital and also once you have it make sure that you're building with strong fundamentals so you keep control of your business for a long time if that's what you want, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. And I think it's really important to talk about. And I'm curious, what, who would you say, or not who, like in what situation do you think someone shouldn't raise capital? I know that's a big question, but I feel like a lot of people are like, I'm going to raise money. And I'm like, A, there's like different avenues. And I, I just love, I would love to hear your perspective. If the capital is not going to basically help them become the product that they're trying to be, I like if you already make your product and then what you're trying to do is scale that product, like a physical thing, like a jewelry business, for example, you likely don't need to raise venture capital. 
sure there are there are outliers to these situations that we've seen where you have something that's like scaling very quickly, like a mass product that's raised venture capital. Um, but obviously in the time we're in now, where a lot of people are looking back at those decisions and investing in these kinds of companies and th- that were not profitable, where the unit economics are not strong enough and they're overly reliant on venture capital and thinking maybe this was a mistake, right? And so now we, there's a lot of sort of like Monday morning quarterbacking kind of going on. But if the capital is going to be a massive differentiator to the future of your business, if you're a technology company and you need you know, tens of millions of dollars to build your technology so that you can, you know, so that you can scale and, and grow it, you likely need to raise venture capital, right? It's, it's the difference that capital makes. And that's, that sort of needs to be the question entrepreneurs ask themselves, what difference does this capital make? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, like you said, like, what business are you in? Like, you clearly need a lot of money in tech to like build whatever that is, right? Versus like a jewelry business or a product-based business. Totally. If you're opening a pizza shop, even if you want to have a hundred of them at some point, you likely need to start with one and then scale and scale and scale, right? If you look at like early Shake Shack and kind of, and that, and kind of that business, right? Making sure that you can have strong business fundamentals in your first location before you're, you know, going on and on and on to others. I think, you know, is sort of what I mean when I'm like, look at the kind of business that you have and the fundamentals of that business and then decide if you actually need venture capital and if the dilution is worth it. And, you know, if giving up a huge piece of your pie is worth it. And in a lot of cases it is right. Getting other expertise and things like that into your business with you. Sometimes it isn't. And I have often said to an entrepreneur that came in to pitch, this is not the kind of money you want. Mm. Go take go get a loan. Yeah. A lot of this, especially if there's like an asset, right. That they can, that they can take a loan against, you know, then there's something, you know, there's something interesting also about, you know, about that different kinds, different types of money in business, credit versus uh, equity. Yeah. And exactly. Like even outside of investors, like debt is an option, right. And there's so many different debt options out there. So it's good to talk about, because I feel like people don't really think through that. But no, that's super helpful. And I'd love to now kind of pivot to your latest business, Fig One. So tell us more about the inspiration and how you kind of connected with your co-founders to bring it to life. So I was actually looking at skincare companies to make an investment. So I saw over 100 companies in about 18 months and I kept finding a gap in the market. But the other thing I kept finding were people that were really aligned to this idea that... I had sort of had down on paper, but as like a white paper that this is what I see. So often when you're an investor, when you have like a thesis on a market, you'll draft a white paper and, you know, really get that, you know, really get that idea out. I shared that with a couple of people who I met. um, And most importantly, my co-founders, Dr. Courtney Rubin, our chief medical officer and co-founder of Fig One and Lizzie Charlestad, our head of chemistry um, and co-founder of Fig One. And when I shared it with them, they had a lot of alignment to the, where I saw this gap. And the, and the gap we sort of all shared was high potency, active ingredients at a price point that didn't break the bank and lowest impact on the environment as possible. So how do we do this sustainably, as sustainably as we can? And so between the three of us, we, you know, we have this idea and vision for, you know, 
for the space and we built a team and started with our first eight products. Our first eight products were all anti-aging products. And today obviously mine has scaled, um, you know, anti-aging, I don't like really healthy aging, you know, graceful aging products. We all want to keep our skin as healthy and sparkly as, you know, as you can and um, as it's aging. Um, but also treat other, you know, serious conditions, acne, etc. And so, you know, I had a, a sort of handful of products I thought that we should make, but I said to Lizzie and Courtney, if we were going to create a comprehensive, healthy aging lineup, what would be in the lineup? And they came back to me with what ended up being the first eight products in Fig One. I love that. And there's two things that kind of stand out is just the passion around the industry. Like you said, you're a skincare enthusiast. You had this investment idea. You didn't really find a company, but you connected with other people around kind of your passions and what you envision in the in this space. And I think sometimes a lot of people think like, okay, skincare, there's so many different companies. It's so saturated, but there's always a unique angle. So I love how you kind of like walk through the vision that you had. Because if you look hard enough and you you know, again, are solving your own problem. I feel like there's always an opportunity for everyone, right? If you're unique with that idea. Totally. And also I, it's, it's interesting because I love Fig One and I use the Fig One product, I use Fig One products every single day. I'm also honest in my social media in that I use other products all the time yeah. too. I love skincare mm-hmm. and we like to say as a brand that we play nice in the medicine cabinet because we love other brands, you know? We're all enthusiasts as a team. And so we all have favorites that like you couldn't rip out of my cold dead hands. You know, I'm like, you're never taking this from me, you know? And that was important to us too, knowing we weren't going to make something for every single thing that we were going to, that there was going to be some products for, you know, for everyone in the whole line, but that actually there was a lot of room for creating the routine that I think we probably all have, which is like a mixed product routine. Very few people have something front to back entire line, um, Fig One or any other brand. And so you might have a product that you really like investing in, right? You might use Barbara Sturm's hyaluronic acid and you might think that's really worth it, but that's $300 right? You probably can't buy every single one of your products being $300, right? The best skincare is skincare you're going to use every single day with regularity. And that means things have to be affordable as well. And so I had this killer routine that I, you know, that I was doing every single day and I was spending like almost $2,000 a month on skincare, which is insane. And like, it's such a crazy thing, you know, to, to even say out loud, but these ingredients that I was putting on my face, I thought, you know, these are really, you know, these are really, really important um, to my skin. And, you know, you only get one face, right? You're not, you know, you're not going to get a new face later. Sure. And so I, I thought this is kind of insane and not sustainable. And, you know, we, this also should be for everyone. It shouldn't cost $2,000 to have your skin look great. It should, you know, you should be able to do it at a reasonable price and you should be able to buy it at a CVS. You should be able to buy it at a pharmacy when you're doing all your other errands. And so that was the other vision is it was about accessibility, about where you could buy it. So about price, about information and education around these products. So how does retinol work and why, you know, and in a location that was easy to get that you didn't have to like wait, you know, to get it or some exclusive you know, location would sell it. I love it. It sounds like a dream brand, right? It's like what everyone wants, like, you know, well-priced, effective ingredients. I mean, we all know, like whenever 
it seems like your skincare all kind of ends at the same time. You're like, okay, here I go spending that, you know, whether it's a couple hundred or thousands in your case, it's always like they all hit at the same time. So it's always funny, but I love the accessibility of it because you can just quickly go and pick it up. And what I also find so interesting, you know, even before you launched, like you mentioned, you had these ideas of your products and what you kind of wanted to maybe create, but with your co-founders who, you know, having a diverse team, like people who are experts seeing people, they kind of came back to you with their perspective. And I just think like, that's the biggest gift. If you can have a co-founder who's like the expert or in a different field or an advisor, like sometimes you might think you have the right lineup, but people who are practicing and are the practitioners, it's just so game changing. I mean, even, you know, I'm in wellness, so we have advisors and my co-founder is kind of the expert and there's so much that I learned from them. So I love just like how you've kind of teamed up also with the right team to kind of create this vision that you guys have, which I think is amazing. And I'm curious, you know, I know you kind of are building this brand based on those fundamental rules we talked about earlier on, which is like, don't spend too much money and like, let's be profitable. So how did you really think about getting the product out in the early days? Like, how are you creating awareness? What were maybe some things that kind of worked for you to create that buzz? You know, what's interesting, we're actually, st we still do a lot of this as, you know, we're still early on in our scale, right? We're sure we're distributed through, you know, major pharmacy with our CVS partnership, which is amazing. So obviously that's scale, but we, um, you know, we still do a lot of the early grassroots marketing work that we started with, which is a lot of partnering with like-minded brands. So we partner with like-minded brands all the time, especially things that have alignment to being great for your, great for your skin or beauty but not necessarily, you know, skincare specifically. And so, cause obviously that's, you know, that's where we sit. Um, so we partner with brands like Ceremonia, right? I love Ceremonia. I love Baba and I think she's amazing. And so it felt to me like her user and our user could be the same user. And so we talked about doing a partnership and then we did, right? So find brands that are like-minded to you and partner with them, like-minded to you in a lot of ways about your product and philosophy, but then also about who your customer is. And for partnerships, would it look like, you know, that could look like so many things, whether it's a giveaway or creating like a specific limited edition bundle, right? Where you kind of pull together the products, but what have, what in terms of partnership, what has worked for you guys? Sure. So we, so in this particular case, um, one month in every box that shipped, that ceremony is shipped, we gave away our products and it was a new launch product. And then in our boxes that went out that month, we gave away one of their signature products as well. So they sort of each got sort of a cross, sort of a cross gift um, in the other's brands to expand our customer base and give and create brand awareness. We've done also other partnerships like during Mother's Day at the Hill House Home Store, Nell Diamond is a dear friend. Um, I also work with her on the Hill House business on from my investing practice. And, um, we know our customer is, you know, is very much alike. It's something we spend time talking about. And so we gave away full-size products out of her store in Rockefeller center over mother's day. And when we launched our body products. And so these partnerships that you can, you can create, talk to other entrepreneurs, talk to other female entrepreneurs, you mm -hmm. know, want to help each other and figure out what you can give them as well. Not just what they can give you, right. You know what you from them? What do you provide to them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. And it's like fun, right? Like you're connecting with other entrepreneurs who have similar values. Like, I love that. That seems like a great way to grow a business, you know, where it's enjoyable. Yeah. I also will literally talk to anyone about Fig One, honestly. And yeah. so 
you know, my, I have twin boys, they're two and a half and they go to school down in New York. And when we have events with all of the moms, I'm always giving away products to all these moms, like 70 moms come to a party and I'm like, here's body products, you know? And so you have to be your own like best champion and your own best marketing as well. Gosh, I love that. That really resonates with me. Like our, you know, whether it's my eyebrow lady or I'm going somewhere, I feel like our, our first product was all around like seeds, the seed cycling protocol. So I'm like, I'm the seed dealer. I'm literally convincing women like, they're telling me their hormone stories. You know, the other day I was getting my nails done for like two hours. We were talking about what she was going through and I'm like, gosh, I, I really could help. I'm going to drop you off some like seeds, like just give it a shot. So I, I totally love how you're just saying, you know, you need to be your biggest advocate and like the passion should just be like gooing out of you whenever you're out and like connecting with people, um, which, you know, obviously having that bigger why is like the biggest gift when starting your own business. So, you know, one thing I also would love to pivot on is, you know, you guys decided to raise money. You briefly, we chatted about like who shouldn't, who should raise money. So maybe for Fig One, how did you kind of think through the capital that you guys raised? You know, I, I'm sure it was very thoughtful, especially as you being an investor as well. Yeah. So this is unique, right? Because I'm a co-founder of Fig One and because I'm also a co-founder of ABC, the venture fund. We had a build program inside of our venture fund. We were the early capital into the fake one business. Amazing. Yeah. And then I had to be thoughtful about who, what other capital I brought in around that. And so for that capital, I looked for expertise and I looked for partners that could help the business and, you know, and would be in that kind of marketing role with me as well. And so there's you know, there's a number of like celebrities and influencers are, that are investors in the brand. And that's really helpful. No, that's super helpful. I think, you know, you being selective about the money that comes in and like this quote unquote smart money, you being thoughtful about who can support the business. And you knew before going into it that marketing was like the main focus for what you want to support. And so again, just being intentional around what support you need and who you bring in. I love that. So I know we're coming here on time and I want to talk about a few personal things that I love that you mentioned in another interview. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of, you mentioned another interview that you said that you were sometimes a little OCD. I'm definitely a little OCD. And I know in business being OCD is just not going to work at all. Like it's actually probably the worst thing that you can be, but tell me more about what, what you were saying in that interview, because I know like in starting a business, it's so tough to control anything. And if the one thing I learned is like, you have to just be with like the situation and like ride it like a wave. So how do you, what is this OCD and like, how do you manage it in your business life? <laughs> yeah. So funny. My husband is going to laugh a lot when he listens to this <laughs> podcast. Um, so I think being an entrepreneur, the most important skill for being an entrepreneur is being comfortable with discomfort, right? And so I can be OCD and want everything to be perfect and look perfect in the box to have no mistakes, right? All these things and very much sit with the discomfort as it hits the market. And I wait for feedback and, and sort of feel what's, you know, what's going to happen next. But that also means you have to play out your OCD in other ways. And like, I also kind of hate yeah. to use the phrase because it like is a real, it's like a you know real ailment. My need for things to be tied up in a neat bow and, you know, and done very neatly. And so that plays out in my closet, in my fridge, in my organizational habits, in my handbag. It plays out in all the places I can control. And 
I recognize that when I feel out of control and things in the things in the world like today is a horrible day, right? We're living in a really tough time, you know, with what's just gone on with the Hamas attack in Israel, right? And I'm feeling very out of control and I will, you know, I'll just do something that I know I can control, like take out all the clothes from my closet and put them all back in neat, you know, or do a whole pile of dishes, you know, even if it's not like my, you know, my pile of dishes to manage, or I'll do something like give, you know, I'll do my kids bath and get them all, you know, all dressed in their pajamas and stuff at night, which I do often, obviously I do it every night, but there's some like, there's sometimes you're doing it where you're like, you're half in, half out, and you're kind of, you've got one thing to do and, a, and dinner to make and whatever else going on. And there's sometimes you're just like, you know what, I'm going to focus on this thing and do it perfectly and give you all of my attention and make you feel me here. And whatever that box I'm checking, you know, that I need to check because I can't check a bunch of other boxes that I desperately want to. That's the thing I to get control of, you know, oh my God. Make, make a perfect bolognese. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. I feel like we're the same. If my husband was listening, he would laugh too. Anytime I'm like going around the house and organizing, he knows like work is busy or something's going on. Like there's things I can't control. And I'm like, let me do my thing. I love that I can control moving these things out or cleaning the refrigerator. Like, and it brings me peace because it's one thing I can actually control in my life at this stage. You know, that's a muscle too, right? So like, it's why I think we say successful people make their bed in the morning, right? Things like that. Yeah. That's a muscle. Excellence is a muscle that, and you need to flex it in order to be it, right? And so make sure you get up and you make your bed and maybe you go to the market and get flowers and arrange them next to your bed or whatever. These little things kind of throughout your day that you can like bring control and peace into help you when everything feels out of control as well. And so for me, I found that really works. Yeah. And I love that you said like the biggest, the biggest skill that an entrepreneur should have is like being comfortable with discomfort. It sounds so simple, but it's so key. And as you hit different milestones in your business, you continue to be stretched. Like there's no, once you kind of hit, became comfortable with the like first phase of discomfort, then your business changes, something happens an employee leaves, you're like thrown into something else. And that's the biggest, like you were saying, the biggest skill is if you can just feel okay with like things that are out of your control, things that feel discomfort and know that that is just part of growing a business and that you're not alone in that feeling. So I even hearing you say that, I'm like, okay, I feel seen. That's just how it is. But it's a good practice to start working on even in the smallest of ways, because it will only compound as your life gets bigger, your business gets bigger. So I love that. But I also now want to end on, you mentioned your twin boys. They're so adorable. Oh my gosh, they're the cutest, the cutest ones. You mentioned something in another interview where you said, you know, you don't love the word balance, but you really talk about like focus versus balance. I might've got that wrong, but tell me more about how you structure your life because clearly, you know, you're an involved mother, you're an investor, you're growing this like high growth business. I look at you, I don't have kids yet, but I'm like, tell me more about how you kind of structure your days because that could feel very overwhelming to a lot of people. There's a lot of things that you're managing. Totally. And I like, I really try to do good PR for being a working mom, right. And being a working entrepreneur mom, you know, it's really its own special facet. And I actually have a, like a text group on Misha pods. That's oh, all cool. entrepreneur moms. Yeah. Which is really helpful. And awesome. so 
When I say I don't believe in balance, but I believe in focus, it's what I was talking about earlier about bath time. Put your phone down, walk away from your work, and you let your team know from 6.30 to 7.45, I start baths and I finish bedtime and you are not going to be able to reach me. And if it is an emergency and you need to reach me, find me in my kid's bathroom. That's where I am. And you're going to have to come to my house, right, to do it. And so everyone knows, by the way, it only has happened once where someone showed up. <laughs> in two and a half years. Yeah. So, but it has happened. <laughs> and so it's something I think is, is really important to say, like, this time is uninterruptible, kid time, family time, whatever it is. And also it's uninterruptible. This, here's the thing. Your work time for your kids is always interruptible. If your kid has an allergy attack at school or whatever's going to happen, you're interruptible. It just is. But I try to separate myself out of the house or, you know, whatever, so that I can get focus in my office versus like, I tried to do some working from home and that I have heard it works for some moms. I found it really hard to be able to hear my kids in the other room and not sort of get involved and, and get in the, and get in the mix. And so it's possible it's doable. You can be a great involved mother and you can still excel and, and in your career, but you have to, first of all, get very, very efficient, right? You cannot dally for decision-making for a long time. You have to answer the email when you open it. You have to make the decision at hand when you're making the decision. You cannot just go, you know, ping pong back and forth on things. You don't have the time to and so you end up getting very efficient, very decisive, very clear on what's important to you and know that some things are going to fall away, right? I had some friendships that were not serving me that I, you know, that I wasn't being fed by, that I felt like when I was spending time, I was wasting my time. You will quickly start eliminating things that waste your time, right? These you know, these things that are like not priorities for you, for you anymore. And then you're going to have friendships that you're closer to and you're going to, and that's the time you need. And that's like, I call them my um, side of the pool. It's like when I've been treading water all day long and now I get to grip the side of the pool for a glass of wine with a friend. Yeah. And you really feel like that or like you're poor in a storm. Sometimes I see, you know, everything is like so crazy. And then you like finally get this like other entrepreneur mom who knows you're dealing with and like maybe she also has twins like or maybe she's also got kids the same age or whatever and I feel like it's like my final stillness in that moment and you can I only have 10 minutes sometimes right I only have a short time but it's like just what you need so you get efficient you get focused and you make sure that you're you are giving to and being fed by the situation you're in and if you're not if you're both not feeding it and feeling fed by it then it's time to make a different decision and reprioritize something else. Mm -mm. God, I love that. I have so many questions there. I love that you say, I mean, even it's healthy because, you know, I'm two years in my business. I will admittedly say like, there was no balance. I've been working nonstop. I have no kids. So I have all the time in the world, which I'm learning is, you know, not the best thing because you do need breaks. And I think you even sharing for me, like doing something that's outside of work and shifting and not being on your phone, like not like being with a friend, but still doing emails. Like I've, I've done that. Yeah. But cause you're still actively working, but taking that even 30 minute break where you're focused on anything, it could be a walk. It could be like doing those flower arrangement. You're saying like, it sounds so basic, but that is something that I'm really like trying to incorporate in my life because it's just all encompassing, especially when you're so passionate about your business where I'm like, okay, this is not sustainable. And I'm going to be doing this for a long time, you know, and I want to feel energized. So I love that you, you know, even with kids, you talk about just 
focus. Like when you're working, you're working and then you shift priorities. And I think that's even healthy for like your brain taking a break and doing something different for problem solving, not being in it. So I love that. I'm just sharing that in case it's helpful for anyone. <laughs> I love that too. And I found the same, like sometimes you you find yourself kind of on the brink and you're like, have to remind yourself, learn when to pause, not when to quit. Right. Sometimes all you really need is to go and see a movie or something and to mm-hmm. put your phone down. And, you know, it feels like, oh, I'm just done with this right now. Right. And I think you need to sort of recognize those times. So you do have a longevity. Business is long. Life is long. And you and a lot of things are hard. Right. And so especially when you're building a company and raising a family and trying to be a good wife as well and be a good friend and sister and daughter. Right? All those things fall on us as women. And in doing that, and also I try to be a good participant in my community and a good mom at school and go do things with the other moms and whatever. And you find yourself, yeah, you find yourself like with a laundry list. It's crazy long of things that are reliant on you. And sometimes that means you just need 30 minutes to get a manicure with no phone. With yeah. no phone with no Instagram, with no podcast, with no nothing, just sitting, you know, just hanging out with a friend or by yourself. God, I love that. And it's so true. Those times you feel overwhelmed, it's not to quit, it's to take a pause. And it's always life changing. Like the world is not ending after you take the pause. You're like, oh, it's actually not that much. You were just so overwhelmed by the many different things you were doing. Or your nervous system is just like, this is too much. So a pause goes a very long way. And I definitely am learning that. But no, Kimmy, this was amazing. You shared just so many words of wisdoms and gems. And I'm so excited about everything you're building. Looking forward to staying in touch and everybody learning more about Fig One. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.